Hey, welcome to the podcast. My name is Harrison. I'm the pastor here at Kingdom Church. We are so excited you took the time to listen to this message. We are in part three of our series, The Problem of God. Here it is. All right, how's everyone doing this morning? Anyone excited to be here? Awesome. My name is Harrison. I'm the pastor here at Kingdom Church. And uh, we're so excited you guys took time out of your day to be here with us. And uh, we just want you to know that as a church, we're willing to do whatever it takes. So for those who have been with us these last few weeks, we are in the middle of a series called The Problem of God. How many of you guys have been there for this series? Any parts of it? There we go. Uh, What we are doing in this series is we are answering common objections that people have to Christianity, reasons why people couldn't believe in God. We call them problems. Uh, If you're with us the first week, we looked at the problem of science, and what we found out is that science and faith are actually more closely connected than we were led to believe. Last week, we looked at the problem of God's existence, and what we found out was that although no one has ever seen God, that does not mean that there are not clues for God. And so if those messages sound amazing, you miss them, guess what? They're all online. You can check them out. You can catch up. And uh, as I've been saying for this whole series, uh, no matter where you are, where you fall on the spectrum, maybe you consider yourself a skeptic, maybe you consider yourself an atheist, or you're a Christian, uh, I have a belief that no matter where you are on this spectrum, on this journey we call life, that there is something you can take from this message. And so we're in part three this morning, and part three is called The Problem of the Bible. The Problem of the Bible. Uh, I have a belief that the Bible is one of the most misunderstood books in the entire world. It's one of the most misunderstood books in the entire world. And so for a lot of people, for a lot of skeptics, people that question Christianity, the problem with the Bible is how can we trust it? How can I trust the Bible? Uh, and, and skeptics and people and even Christians themselves, a lot of the objections you will hear is, how can I trust something that's so old? How can I base my life on a book that is thousands of years old? How can, how can I trust this book? I'm going to ask you guys a question. Has anyone in this room ever felt like they've been misunderstood before? Yeah. Okay, a few people. You know, I'm not alone. Uh, myself, one thing that I find is I find that oftentimes I'm misunderstood. Uh, people don't know me. And specifically, when I first uh, went to college, this was, a, this was something that I experienced. I didn't know anyone, and uh, what I came to find out is that people had a perception of me. And the perception was that uh, I was not friendly, and I was stuck up. Now, some of you guys that know me, you're like, no way. <laughs> right? But that was, the, that was the perception that people had of me, and it was kind of frustrating because I don't think that I'm stuck up at all. And, and one of the reasons, and this is the thing, I have a belief that for every misconception people have, a lot of times there is actually easy explanations for every misconception. And so for myself, people thought, okay, this guy never smiles and he's stuck up. But I had very easy explanations for why I was like this. Number one, and this is something most people don't understand about me. I'm actually, by nature, I'm very shy. Uh, people see me on stage and they're like, you're not shy. I'm actually, by nature, my nature is quiet and I'm shy. And so I don't, I'm not outgoing. And so that's one reason that I come across as being stuck up, because like, I'm too scared to talk to people. But there was another reason why I didn't smile. I was 18 years old and I had braces. <laughs> now, if you have 
braces. That's nothing wrong with it. But I was 18 and I felt, you know, as an adult, as my first year of manhood, I couldn't let these people know I had braces. And so I just, I just wouldn't smile. And uh, so what I'm trying to say is for this, this perception that people have for me, uh, I have this belief that for every misconception, there's often an easy explanation. And so when it comes to the Bible, I believe that the Bible, the reason that I said it's the most, one of the most misunderstood books is because what I think is that a lot of objections that people have when it comes to the Bible are actually misunderstandings. I remember when I was in the 11th grade, uh, I had a biology teacher, and I went to a Catholic high school, and, and she said to our class, she said, you know what? She said, you can't really trust the Bible. She says, because the Bible says that Adam and Eve had two kids, Cain and Abel. How do they populate the rest of the world? Two men. And I remember the whole class was like, yeah. The, the Bible can't be true. And myself, I wasn't a pastor in the 11th grade, obviously, but even I knew what she was saying was fishy. And obviously that day I went home and Genesis 5-4 tells us that Adam and Eve had many, many, many kids, enough to populate the whole world. But you see, for that misconception that they had, there was actually an easy explanation. And when it comes to the Bible, a lot of the, the objections that people have, they're not always that easy. Uh, but one thing that I believe is that if there is a misunderstanding in the Bible, oftentimes there is an answer to our misunderstandings, to our misconceptions. Uh, if you're a Christian, this, this, uh, this verse will uh, be familiar to you. It's found in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says, all scripture is God-breathed and it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in all righteousness so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So as Christians, and I'm bringing the Christian perspective of the Bible now, if you are a Christian, this is a verse that you may have heard before. Essentially what it is saying, it's saying all scripture is God-breathed. In other words, all scripture comes from God and therefore it is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking. In essence, it is how and what we do to base our lives. We base our lives around what is in the Bible. That's what 2 Timothy chapter 3 says. And now uh, I'll canvas with this because a lot of people have a misunderstanding of the Bible in terms of what it is. The Bible is not one long book. Some of you guys are like mind blown. <laughs> the Bible is actually 66 individual books. It's broken up into two testaments, the Old and the New Testament. And together, all these 66 books make up one book that we call the Bible. And the crazy and the cool thing about the Bible is that all these 66 books, although they are written by different authors, and understand this too, some people think that Christians believe God wrote the Bible. Like his hand came down from heaven, he started writing things down. Christians do not believe that. They believe that people wrote the Bible and were inspired by God as they wrote it. Um, but all these books, 66 different books, they work together to give us one picture of God of who God is. And so this is just a backdrop of what the Bible is. And so the Christians think the Bible is great. It helps us essentially to live our lives. But the skeptic will ask the question, essentially, how can I trust this? How can I trust this? And this is really the question that I want us to answer today, plain and simple. Can I trust the Bible? Can I trust what the Bible says? All of us, I'm sure, at some point have heard the objections. The Bible is too old. It's thousands of years old. It's misogynistic. Its views on sexuality do not match up with what we believe in 2019. We simply cannot trust the Bible. And so there's all these objections to why we can't trust the Bible. But today what I want to do, much like I've been doing in this series, is I want to give us evidence and I want to give us arguments and really just answer tough questions. 
on how can I trust the Bible. And what I said uh, last week, and I'll say it again this week, as we go through this journey and, and we answer this question, can I trust the Bible? I want us to go not where we hope the evidence leads, but where the evidence actually leads. Because I said this, if the evidence, if we find that evidence is true, if something is true, that must do something in us. We must change. If something is true, we must change. It doesn't mean we'll believe differently, but we have to at least change. One thing uh, in my mom's house, she has a really big pantry. Some of you guys think big pantries are a good thing. They're not, because you can put food in there forever. <laughs> and my mom will have food from like 16 years ago in the pantry. And so one question I always ask when I go there, I say, how old is this food? And she'll say, I just bought it. Luckily, I'll go and grab the bottle. And what bottles all have is a expiry date. And so I'll go, mom, this is from 2012. <laughs> it's evidence, right? And, and so my mom still will not believe it's expired because she doesn't believe things expire. However, the evidence points in a direction where at least at some point she must change. And so what? What I want to do this morning is I want to give us some evidence for why we can trust the Bible. How can we trust the Bible? And I'll say this. If I were this morning to, to try and hit every single objection that people have with the Bible, we'd be here till 6 p.m. Uh, it's just a lot of stuff that I cannot cover in 30, 40 minutes. Um, but the great news is, as Andrell told us, Kingdom Crews are launching next week. And uh, there we go. Uh, I myself have a crew. Personal shout out to myself. And... Uh, <laughs> I'm going somewhere. Uh, our crew, uh, it's specifically for people, uh, you consider yourself a new believer or you wanna know more about the Bible. Uh, that's, what my, that's what my crew's all about. And so I would love to help you study even further uh, because after today, I'm sure some people might still have questions. Uh, but I wanna answer some of the bigger objections as best as I can. You guys ready for this journey? Yeah. Turn to the person next to you, say, I'm ready. I'm ready. Awesome. <laughs> So the first thing I want to look at this morning is how can I trust the Bible historically? And I think this is one of the biggest objections. Can I trust a book that is so old? The Bible is thousands and thousands of years old. How can I trust it? And one of the reasons I believe this is the biggest objection that people have to the Bible is because it's the easiest objection. What do I mean by that? For most people, and, and don't be offended, this is for Christians and skeptics alike. I have a belief, and I'm, I think I'm well-backed by statistics, that most people do not read the Bible. And so the easiest objection for someone who has never read the Bible is to discredit it for being old, because you don't actually have to read it to know that it's old. And so that's an objection that a lot of people have. How can I trust the Bible historically? So that's the first thing I want to dive into this morning. And so in order for scholars and people that study these types of things, in order for them to look at ancient documents and for them to know if an ancient document is accurate, the one thing and the first thing they will do is they will look at manuscripts. So the more manuscripts that an ancient document has, the easier it is to determine how accurate this was to the original. And, and the second thing is how far these manuscripts were actually written from the original. So what I want to do very quickly is I want to look at three ancient uh, historical documents that historians consider to be true. These are considered to be factual. The first is a book uh, by a man named, by the name of Theosidites. Most of my sermon prep this week was trying to learn how to pronounce this guy's name. 
I was actually with Christy when I was trying to pronounce it, and I was just like mumbling under my breath, and she thought I was having a stroke. I was like, Theosis, Theosis. So this guy, he was, uh, he was a Greek scholar. He lived uh, around 460 BC. And uh, he was actually a, a historian that wrote on Greco-Roman culture. And so what we have for him, we have eight manuscripts left. There's eight manuscripts, and the earliest manuscript that we have in existence took place 1,300 years after the original was written. Just, this will make sense in a second. The next one is Aristotle's Poetics. How many of us have heard of Aristotle? He's a Greek philosopher. And so, again, these are all documents that historically historians say this is accurate, this is truthful. So for Aristotle's Poetics, we have five manuscripts available to us. And these five manuscripts were translated 1,400 years after the original. Last one, Alexander the Great. How many of you guys remember social studies class? You guys are like, yeah, I remember. I didn't come here for it. <laughs> Alexander the Great, uh, he was a king, whatever. Uh, his, he had two documentaries. I, social was a long time ago. He has two ancient biographies, and the earliest biographies written about Alexander the Great were written 400 years after his death. So if this is all extremely boring, I'm gonna show you why you need to know this in a second. So understand this, all three of these things are historically accurate documents. So let's contrast it now with the New Testament. The Bible is broken into two Testaments, the Old and the New Testament. The New Testament is all about Jesus, his life, and and afterwards. So for the New Testaments, in existence, there are 25,000 manuscripts. So this is far and away higher than any of those ancient documents. 25,000 manuscripts. And the beauty of a manuscript is the more manuscripts you have, the better picture you're able to paint of what was originally written. And so when it comes to the New Testament, the earliest manuscript that we have still in existence is from the early hundreds AD. So it's extremely, extremely old. It happened some 70 years after the events took place. And if we look at the stats before, most of the manuscripts that we consider to be accurate did not, we don't have manuscripts that are even a thousand years from the actual date. And so essentially this, the, the biggest argument against the New Testament is that it's too old. It's too old to be true. The events are written too far after the fact. But we have 25,000 manuscripts, but here is what is more powerful than that. Um, can we go to the next slide, Krish? Uh, the early letters of Paul, this is New Testament stuff. They were all written 15 to 20 years after the death of Jesus, which historically speaking is very, very soon afterwards. That's the letters of Paul, 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians, Romans, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These were all written within 30 to 50 years after the death of Jesus. Now, for some people, they think, well, that's a long time, right? For, for the stories about Jesus to be written 30 years after. 30 years gives a lot of time for the story to change. However, and the reason I showed you all these other ancient documents is because what I'm trying to show you is that when it comes to the New Testament, the New Testament was written so much closer to the actual date of when the events took place than any other historic document. And so it's just one reason that we can trust the Bible. And so here is why this is so powerful. The closer something is written to when it actually happened, the harder it is for false information to make its way in. So Paul's letter, 1 Corinthians, we'll read it in a second. It was written 15 years after the death of Jesus. So in terms of, let's put this into today, that happened in 2004. It's not that long ago. 
So for me, if I were to come up here and I were to make up a story completely fabricated that happened in 2004, my story could not take off. Why? It's not that far removed. I'll give you an example. How many of you guys have ever heard of people called Holocaust deniers? This is, and I'm not trying to give them glory because they're a sick group, but essentially what they do is they try to deny that the Holocaust existed. And the reason that this group is a small, 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 small minority is because every time they try to come and present something that is false, they run up against facts. Because the Holocaust was only 80 years ago. And so there are people who are still alive in concentration camps, people that were actually literally there that saw family members die. And so they were there to give firsthand testimonies. And so what happens when you make things up and it is not far enough removed, you will eventually run into facts. How many of you guys saw Bohemian Rhapsody, the new Queen movie? <laughs> awesome, because some of you guys, like you're so pop culture, you're like, I know Queen better than I know world history. Um, but if any of you guys saw the movie, some of the complaints about the movie was that the timeline of uh, Freddie Mercury's life was not in order. The movie kind of twisted things around, and so a lot of big hardcore fans were ticked off, right? Because his life didn't happen very long ago, and so what happens is that people are still alive when things are written, if they are made up inevitably, and eventually they will run into facts. And so look at this. The New Testament was written 15 years. Paul, 15 years after the death of Jesus, he writes 1 Corinthians. And I want us to read this. 1 Corinthians 15 says this. He says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead. On the third day, just as scripture said, he was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom, get this, are still alive. alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I'd been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. This is 15 years after the death of Jesus. And now a lot of skeptics and people that, that are misinformed, they think that the things were written hundreds and hundreds of years afterwards. And so things were made, this was 15 years after the death of Jesus. And so the reason that Paul is saying these things, Paul lists off people, James, Peter, 500 others. The reason that he does this is because what Peter is saying, or what Paul is saying, he's saying, if you don't believe that Jesus actually resurrected, he said, go and ask these people because they're still alive. You see, when you write things too close to the event and they're completely fabricated, they cannot take off because eventually they will be hit by facts. Do you guys see what I'm saying? And so if you read the New Testament, I could go through examples, but New Testament literature is written completely different than how ancient literature is written. And so many times when you read the Gospels, you will see that they put people's names in the stories. In the book of Mark, there's a guy named Ruffus. And they put his name specifically in the Bible. And again, the reason they do this is essentially to say, if you don't believe, go and ask him. Because he saw it. Because he was there. And so this objection that these things are too old doesn't necessarily hold weight because the New Testament was written so close to when the events actually took place. And the manuscripts that we have, the more and more that we have, they work in collaboration with each other. I want to read you a quote. It's from a man named Sir Frederick G. Kenyon uh, of the British Museum. He says, In no other case is the interval of time between the composition of the book and the date of the earliest existing manuscript so short 
as that of the New Testament. So essentially what this quote is saying, he's saying there is no other book like this. No other book has so much information and so much reason for us to believe it. And so this is what I said. I said small minorities, if they try to make things up, eventually they'll run up against facts. And they're, 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 whatever they're trying to, their agenda will not be able to push forward. Yet the new church, the, the early church of the New Testament, they turned from a group of 12 people to 120 people to in the span of about 100 years, millions and millions of people. Why? I believe because what they was saying, what the stories that were said, the things that were written actually happened. Last thing really quickly, if you ever read the Bible, uh, there's a story about feeding 5,000 people. Have any of you guys heard of that miracle before? There's another story in the Bible about 2,000 pigs falling off a cliff. Anyone else heard that story before? In these stories, both of these stories take place in extremely, extremely small towns. Who here is from a small town? My wife's from a small town. She's from Ashcroft. You guys are like, Ashcroft? That was my response at least. Now, these stories happen in extremely small towns, and I think there's a specific reason for it. In a small town, everyone knows everything, right? Like, we go to Ashcroft, Christie's, like, saying hi to everyone. She knows everyone. It's like, I was my second grade teacher and my neighbor. Like, everyone knows everyone. So a lot of these stories that take place in the Bible in small towns, especially things like feeding 5,000 or 2,000 pigs dying, it would be next to impossible to make these things up. Why? Because in a small town, someone will tell you if that is a lie. And so this is just evidence. I'm just giving evidence for our case. And so historically speaking, what I'm saying is I believe that we can trust what the Bible says. And historians themselves will also agree, historically speaking, that we can trust the New Testament. However, what I think is more powerful than that is what I call counterproductive content. The Bible, the New Testament, is filled with counterproductive content. I'm sure most of you guys are aware that anyone that is vying for a position of power, a politician, someone like that, do you guys know the saying about politicians? All politicians lie. Have you guys heard that saying? There was a study that was done uh, by the Washington Post, and I'm not sure how accurate it was, but they said since the time Trump has been president, and this is not political, if you love Trump, I'm all for you. Kind of. But it says since his campaign started and, and people fact-checked him, they said Donald Trump has said 5,000 things that are either false and or misleading in the last like three years. He got fact-checked up. Um, but why does he do this? The reason he, and you can dump on him, but all politicians lie, the reason that they do it is because they will say things about themselves to build them up in order for their case to be made stronger. Because if you can come across as, as brass and strong, people want to follow someone like that. And so what you will see, though, is when it comes to the New Testament, the New Testament is actually filled with counterproductive content. So the, the main thing is this. People, for the most part, do not historically think that what is being said is necessarily it didn't happen. It's just more so a lot of things are made up, right? They're trying to start a movement about Jesus. They want people to follow Jesus. So therefore, they just put things in to make Jesus look better, to make themselves look better. However, where this argument falls flat is that the Bible is filled with counterproductive content. Let me give you an example. One of the early leaders of the church, his name was Peter. In the New Testament, Jesus says to Peter, he says, Peter, you are the rock on which I will build my church. He's like, you're my second in command. When I'm gone, I'm going to build my church upon you. 
So if this is a made-up story, you're trying to promote Peter as someone that would follow, what happens next does not really make sense. There's a story when Jesus is crucified. If you guys know the Bible, you know this story. Jesus is put on trial, he's being crucified, and Peter is outside in the courtyard. And these people come up to him and they question him. And they say, hey, aren't you Peter? Aren't you the guy that rolled with Jesus? Peter says, no, that's not me. Same thing happens again. Aren't you Peter? No. He says, no, you are the guy that hung out with Jesus. He's like, a curse on me, a curse on my life. I do not know that man. Three times, Peter, the rock of the church, denies that he knows Jesus, who is the leader and the founder of the movement. Now, if you were making a story up and you wanted people to follow you, why would you include this in the story? Why would you want the leader of your church to be made look as weak and feeble? Why? Why is it in there? Uh, let's, let's keep going. Mark chapter 14. This is about Jesus now. This is Jesus before he's about to die. He's in the garden of Gethsemane. He says this. He says, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. He says, stay here and keep watch with me. Then Jesus went a little further. He fell on the ground and he prayed, if it were possible, this awful hour awaiting him might pass. Abba, Father, he cried out. Everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. So this, this is Jesus. Let's say now this is, a, this is a made up character. This is supposed to be God. Why would they include this story in there? Because what this makes Jesus look is weak and feeble. He, he's essentially declining his mission. Of why he says, Father, please, if there's another way. Why is this in there? Why? Last thing, and I think this is the most powerful of them all. In the New Testament, if you read all the gospel accounts, when Jesus is resurrected, the stories are all the same. There's an empty tomb and an angel comes out and he says, Jesus is not here. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? But in every single story where Jesus is discovered at the tomb, it's the same group of people who discover him. Do you guys know who it is? It's a group of women. It's a group of ladies. And now this doesn't seem like it means much, but you have to understand this. In the first century, a woman's testimony in court was considered invalid. In other words, because they were a woman, because they were lesser, what they said was not valid. It could not be used in a court of law, and even more so, it could not be used to prove anything. So, you're making up a movement about a resurrected Jesus. Why would you make up a story where a group of women go and see Jesus and they're the first ones to discover he's not in the tomb? Because your testimony is not valid. You see, if they were making something up, what would have made more sense was for the disciples to see Jesus, a group of credible men. But no, it was a group of women. Why is this in the Bible? Why are all three of these things in the Bible? Christy and I, one thing that we like to do is we watch the Food Network. It's, uh, it's what I call the natural progression of life. You get married, then you watch the Food Network. That's just how life goes. We started on our honeymoon, haven't stopped since. And uh, we, we watched this one show called Guy's Grocery Games, if anyone's ever seen it before. Fantastic. And Cree's in the back, she's like lighting up like a Christmas tree. How this game works, uh, you play essentially games and you have to cook whatever the game is. And so we were watching this episode this last week and the game was you had to cook a childhood favorite dish. That was the name of the game. You guys all get it, right? What's the game? 
Make a childhood favorite dish. Simple. What's your favorite dish growing up, Chels? Lasagna. So if that was her favorite dish, she has to make it. So we watch this game. There's four competitors, and they're making their favorite childhood dish. They make their things up. It's the food networks. Everyone's fancier than they need to be. It comes time to the judging. And this lady comes, and she has her dish. It's like a pasta and a chicken thing. Again, there's a name. like It's like a bolognese or something. I don't know if that's fancy. But she goes, and she presents her dishes to the judges. And she said, I made you pasta and chicken. She said, growing up, this was the dish I hated the most. And it was, like, literally, it's, it was a funny scene. The cameras panned to all the judges, and they all... <laughs> and even, like, Christy and I looked at each other. We were like... <laughs> the, the, the game is to make a childhood favorite, and she made the dish she hated growing up. But <laughs> as I saw that, why did she say this to the judges? Why? Because it was true. Because it was true. It didn't necessarily make sense. It actually works against her, but the only reason she would say it is because it was true. She would never make that up because it works against her. And so to answer all of these questions, why are these things in the Bible? Why were women the first people to see Jesus if their testimony was invalid? What I am arguing, what I am suggesting is that the reason that that is in the Bible is because that is what actually happened. Because they did not have an agenda, they were simply putting down the facts. They are putting down the truth. All of these things, all of this counterproductive content in the Bible, I believe, is evidence that what is being said in the Bible was true. Because if it was fabricated, if it was made up, they simply would not put it in in that way. They just wouldn't because it doesn't make sense. Last thing. Why can we trust the Bible? Um, a lot of people say, you know, the Bible is accurate, sure. What's being said in it is true, sure. Historically speaking, yeah, I agree. Historians think it's true. There was a man named Jesus. He died. Uh, he lived. Uh, but there's no way I can believe in a resurrection. There's, just, there's no way I can believe in a resurrection. One of the strongest arguments I believe for why we can believe that there was indeed a resurrection uh, is what I like to call this. I say the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the pudding. I have a belief that the strongest evidence for believing in something is how you respond to what you believe. The strongest evidence in believing in something is how you respond to what you believe. Uh, another show that we watch sometimes called Shark Tank. Anyone ever seen Shark Tank before? Oh, business people are getting all excited there. Calm down. Um, how Shark Tank goes is it's these budding entrepreneurs and they present ideas to the sharks and they hope the sharks will invest in them. And one thing I've seen over and over again as I watch this show is there is one thing in the show that absolutely guarantees you will not get a deal. The sharks will ask them a question. They'll say this. They'll say, do you still work at your job or did you quit your job in order to get into this company? And a lot of times people are like, I, I gave everything that I have to this company. I gave everything. But one thing I've seen over and over and over again is that when people do not leave their jobs, in other words, when they do not risk and sacrifice anything for their new company, they will not get people to follow them. The judges will not give them money. And they'll say the same thing over and over again. They'll say, how can I believe in it if you yourself don't believe in it? How can I invest in your company if you don't believe in it? Where am I going with this? 
The strongest evidence if something is real is how we respond to it. In the Bible, there's 12 disciples, and the disciples kind of switch around once Judas pieces out. Read the Bible, you can find what happened to him. But all of the disciples, inevitably, except for John, they all died. Uh, They're all killed, actually. They're all martyrs. And what a martyr is, it means that they died for their faith. So they had chances to recount their faith, say, I don't believe in Jesus. It was, it was all a hoax. It was all a lie. But every single one of them, other than John, they were all killed. They all died martyrs' deaths. They were stoned. They were lit on fire. Some were crucified on crosses upside down. All of them died for what they believed in. And that was in the resurrected Jesus. Now, the common objection is that the disciples made up everything. The story of Jesus is a fabricated story that the disciples told. Now, people say all the time, well, that's not strong proof because people die for their faith all the time. Suicide bombers, right? People in cults, they'll, they'll, drink, the, they'll drink the drink. So people die for faith all the time. But here's the thing that makes the disciples different than those stories. The disciples were the people that actually saw Jesus. In other words, they were the people that would have supposedly made up the story. Now, when push comes to shove and their lives are on the line, and and I don't think anyone here has ever been stoned because no one is stoned before, but you're not dying on the first rock. When people are throwing stones at you, you're not dying right away. You have every single chance to recount and say, everything I said is a lie. I made it up. It's a big hoax. And we can say this. Maybe there are one or two of those disciples who were so, they bought into their lie so much they're willing to die for that lie. But out of every single one of them, all 12 of them, none of them were willing to recount what they said. Why? Because what they were saying was true. Maybe one person will die for a lie, but 12 people in different circumstances, they weren't all killed in the same place. None of them recounted in what they believed. They said, I am willing to die for this. And so one of the strongest proofs why we can believe in a resurrected Jesus, we can believe what the Bible tells us is because the proof is in the pudding. I don't believe for a second 12 people would die for something they made up, for a lie, when stones are getting hurled at them, when they're being lit on fire and they have every chance to say, I made this all up. The proof is in the pudding. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says this. He says, if Christ had not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died before believing in Christ are lost and if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in this world. This is in the Bible. You see, there's this belief going around, yeah, I believe in Jesus, he was a great teacher, he was a great guru, he said great things. But like, he wasn't God. He didn't raise from the dead. I just want to invite the band to come up. We're going to close here. The belief is Jesus is not God. He, he's just a person. He was a great moral teacher. He said great things. But there's no way I can believe in a resurrection. What Paul says in the Bible is this. He says, if Christ had not risen from the dead, he said, our faith is utterly useless. He says, well, there's really no point in us being here. And he says, a Christian person is actually to be pitied 
You should feel sorry for us because we're wasting our time. We're wasting our time. And so one of the reasons when I talk about the validity of the Bible, I'm really honing on the New Testament, I'm honing in on Jesus, is because if Jesus did not resurrect, it does not matter the problems we find in Genesis. It doesn't matter. We're wasting our time. But if Jesus resurrected, if Jesus is who he says he is, that changes everything. That changes everything. Because what that means, we have a Lord, we have a Savior, we have someone who's redeemed us, we have someone who has called us his own because he is who he says he is. I want to close with a quote. Uh, It's by C.S. Lewis, and some of you guys know him best for the Chronicles of Narnia, but he's actually a theologian as well. He says this. He says, you must either make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, You can spit on him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come here with this patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He left, he has not left us open to that. He did not intend to. What C.S. Lewis is saying is essentially this. He's saying the Bible, faith, and Christianity gives us one or two options. He says, there's no in between. If you think Jesus was a great teacher, read his teachings more. When he says, eat my body, drink my blood, that's a great teacher, isn't it? He says, Jesus left us no option. He's either, he either is who he says he is. He's either God, he's the Lord of my life, or he's not. And if he's not, if we don't believe in a resurrected Jesus, then everything else doesn't matter. All of those problems do not matter. And so this morning, what I was trying to do, I was trying to build a case for why we can believe in the Bible and why we can believe what the Bible says is true, that Jesus is who he says he is, that he resurrected. And what I believe is this, friends, the proof is in the pudding. And it's not just in the disciples, it's in you and me. It's in you and I. Because the Bible, Jesus still has the power to change things. I, uh, I, yesterday, I had the privilege to go into the Edmonton Remand Center and uh, I went into the prison uh, with, with, with Pastor Hor. He was a chaplain there. And we gave a Bible study uh, in the midst of prison. Uh, we're in a room, a group of 20 dudes. They're criminals of, of some sort, some offense. And what we did is we studied the Bible together. We studied the book of Proverbs. And I don't have time to tell you my story, but that book changed my life. And, and those Bible studies changed my life. And I've given that Bible study many a times in my life. But this is the first time I gave it in the context of a prison. And it was crazy. I was mostly just there observing, but I could see as we were going through the Bible, I could see the look in people's faces and the look of criminals, some of the hardest people I ever meet. And, and, and the look was, was, was the same in a lot of them. Their eyes were brightened. They were shaking their head up and down. And what we were saying, what we were studying, it related to their life in a way like they could not imagine, like they could not believe. So when I say the proof is in the pudding, what I'm saying is that you can believe whatever you want to believe about the Bible. But what I have seen is it has the power to change lives. And when I'm in the prison studying this Bible with a bunch of criminals and I can see that the Bible, that the word of God is penetrating their hearts, I can see, you know what, the proof is in the pudding. This is real. Maybe everything in here is exactly the way it's supposed to be. I wonder if we could just stand up for a second. At Kingdom Church, we have a belief that that every single week here, God is gonna change someone's life. We don't exist for any other reason than for lives to be changed. 
And so this morning, if everyone, if you just could close your eyes and bow your heads. We just want to give everyone in this room the opportunity to respond to the resurrected Jesus. Maybe you're in here this morning, you're saying, for the first time in my life, I, 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 I actually believe that this was the evidence that I needed. Or maybe you're just saying, I don't know what I'm feeling right now, but I want to take the next step and I want to start a walk with Jesus, the person that changes everything. And so we're going to give you a chance to respond. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. Our purpose is not to call you out, it's not to embarrass you. It's just simply to give you an opportunity to respond to the love of Jesus. I'm going to count to three. And when I count to three, I just want you to raise your hand. Uh, and what you're saying is, I want to accept Jesus into my life. I want him to be the Lord and Savior of my life. What he says is true. Who he is is true. I want to start the journey today. If that's you, when I count to three, just raise your hand. We're going to pray in a second. It's super simple. I'm going to count to three. One, two, three. Just show me your hand real quick. Just keep your hands raised, amen. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Let's just pray this together. Just say, dear Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for dying for me. And thank you for giving me a new life. I give you my everything. I give you my wins. And I give you my sins. Jesus, make me a new creation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's clap our hands for everyone who made that decision. That's the best decision you'll ever make. Hey, thank you so much for listening. If you want more information, head over to kingdomchurch.ca. You will find everything you need and more. Hey, if you've never joined us in person, I want to personally invite you out. We are right here in St. Albert every Saturday morning. You are invited. Take care.